0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane, coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Ukraine's leaders insist they can win the war against Russia, but only with help from the West as the nation marks 12 months since the invasion began. Australia's today announced it's sending drones to Ukraine to help its war effort. That comes on top of previous commitments to give Bushmaster armoured vehicles training and artillery support. The Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, has also announced further sanctions against Moscow.
2: Against 90 people uh, and organisations uh, which take our sanctions to an excess of 1,000. So it's a very heavy sanctions regime against a government which is chosen to engage in an illegal and immoral war breaching sovereignty, breaching the UN Charter. That's why we all have to stand against Russia.
1: But as the conflict enters its second year with no end in sight, President Vladimir Putin's vowing Russia will continue to develop its nuclear arsenal. Europe correspondent Isabella Higgins reports from the capital, Kiev. Residents on this suburban
3: street in Bucha, just outside Kiev, are rebuilding after a dark year. Russian troops and tanks arrived here in the early days of the war, in their unsuccessful attempt to take the capital. They retreated in April, but the neighbourhood still bears deep scars from the battle. I speak with Helena Sanavska outside her destroyed home. How do we feel now? Well, I feel the pain of loss. We saw everything that
4: happened here. There were bodies outside. We saw everything.
3: Twelve months on, her home still has no doors or windows and there's a giant hole in her roof from the shelling that took place in her front yard. The anniversary is important to her, but the memories of what she's lived through are painful to remember. Everyone is worried about when the war will end. Of course, many people were injured, but thank God we were helped. I want to cry. I want to cry. It is difficult. And now I feel for everyone who lived through this. Vasil Kuzmic is a builder helping locals piece their lives back together.
5: When we arrived, the neighbourhood was all ruined. Buildings needed to be taken down. When we finish the rebuild depends on the delivery of building materials, finance, and labour but the most important thing is no more rockets.
3: Twelve months ago, Moscow was trying to take Kiev in a lightning offensive. Instead, it's caught in a grinding war, largely focused in the country's south and east. The United Nations will soon vote on a resolution that condemns Russia's invasion of Ukraine and calls for peace as soon as possible. NATO Secretary-General Stoltenberg reflects on the conflict.
6: Wars are by nature unpredictable. Um, so no one can tell uh, when or how this war
3: ends. Russian President Vladimir Putin hasn't had a military victory in months, but on the eve of the anniversary, he announced his country will further develop its nuclear arsenal after pulling out of a nuclear control treaty with Washington earlier this week.
6: President Putin and Russia stops fighting, then the war will end. We will have peace. If President Zelensky and Ukraine stops fighting, then Ukraine will cease to exist as a sovereign independent nation.
3: Ukrainians will come together for services on Friday to remember their fallen. But it's clear they will not give up their fight for their country. This is Isabella Higgins in Kiev, reporting The AM. A blight and embarrassment for Australia,
1: that's what human rights campaigners are saying following a decision by a United Nations torture prevention body to formally cancel a visit here to inspect jails. The Queensland New South Wales governments won't give permission to the investigating body to inspect all of its facilities and now Australia runs the risk of being placed on a list of countries thumbing its nose at an anti-torture treaty that it signed. Catherine Gregory reports.
2: The United Nations Torture Prevention Body gave Australia a lot of chances to be fully transparent about how its detention centres are managed. Australia has been called to count and it is embarrassing. Shona Reid is the South Australian guardian for children and young people and oversees its youth detention facilities. She's embarrassed the UN's monitoring body, the Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture, or SBT, can't complete its inspection of Australian detention centres, something which has made international headlines.
1: There's only been one time before this that um, visits have been terminated, and that was with Miranda. So we are not a First World country if we can't uphold basic human rights.
2: The SBT had to suspend its tour late last year because it couldn't get access to some centres in New South Wales and Queensland, but this week it announced that visit could not go ahead at all because little had changed. It comes after a damning UN report called out the high rates of Aboriginal deaths in custody, the disproportionate representation of Indigenous people and young Indigenous people in prisons, and the use of solitary confinement on young people. Shona Reid says that's why Australia needs regular inspections by the UN to prevent human rights abuses.
1: So it gets too far before we find ourselves... Um, looking at a front page around atrocities that have happened in detention centres to children.
2: Allowing SPT visits is one of the conditions Australia agreed to when it ratified an anti-torture agreement with the UN known as OPCAT. Each jurisdiction was also meant to set up their own monitoring bodies, also known as NPMs, to oversee detention facilities. But Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland haven't done so yet, saying they need more resources from the Commonwealth. Rebecca Minty is the Deputy Inspector for the Corrections Arm of the NPM in the ACT. She says that threat needs to be taken seriously. Human rights can be seen as esoteric,
4: high-level things that are discussed far off in Geneva or New York, but human rights are what happens every place in the prisons, in the police lockups here in Australia.
2: Ian Anderson is the Commonwealth Ombudsman which oversees Australia's OPCAT obligations. He too worries about what being on the non-compliance list would mean for Australia.
7: It's a further statement that Australia isn't doing what it's committed to publicly. It's a further statement that Australia is keeping the wrong kind of company in terms of being a country that should be seeking to comply with domestic and international human rights obligations.
2: The UN will give a final report on its findings to the Australian government soon and Mr Anderson hopes it'll be made public.
1: Catherine Gregory reporting, and AM has received responses from the New South Wales, Queensland and federal governments, which will be published on the website. This month marks a new era for young people leaving out-of-home care in Australia. For the first time, all states and territories are set to extend care up to the age of 21. It's a stark contrast to just a few years ago when support for out-of-home care leavers was cut off when they turned 18. But advocates say there's still a long way to go. Social affairs correspondent Norman Hermont reports.
5: In a steady stream of university students, 18-year-old Teresa is heading to a lecture on campus in Sydney. Getting here has been a stressful and exhausting journey. In the last year, she left residential care, got a job, found an apartment, finished her high school exams and earned a place at uni. All of this starting when she was just 17 years old and with virtually no support.
6: There were just a lot of
5: times where
6: I felt really alone and I didn't know where to turn. When I needed help, adulting and just figuring out life on your own.
5: Teresa's now mastered what it takes to run a household. She's one of 3,000 young people who leave out-of-home care every year, moving out of foster homes or stays with extended family and kinship care or, like Teresa, leaving residential care. When she left last year, her support in residential care was due to end when she turned 18.
6: My life was so different to all of my friends. All of my friends live at home. They were going to school uh, surrounded by a supportive family and siblings. And I was moving into somewhere totally by
5: myself. Starting this month, young people like Teresa will have more support. New South Wales was the last state to announce plans to extend support to those leaving out-of-home care up to the age of 21. They'll have access to an allowance of $250 per fortnight and caseworkers. Similar supports will be in place in every state and territory by July. Professor Philip Mendez from Monash University believes it's a huge step in the right direction. The fact that in every jurisdiction now we've got a housing allowance and we've got caseworker support is massively important. What we need to do beyond that is to look at uh, is the support provided enough. Out-of-home care leavers often struggle with high levels of homelessness, unemployment and crime. Advocates are calling on the federal government to increase the $1,500 transition to independent living allowance a one-time payment for those leaving out-of-home care. The Department of Social Services has told the ABC it has committed to a review of the allowance and that recommendations will be delivered next year. In the meantime, Teresa believes for young people like her, much more needs to be done.
6: There definitely needs to be greater, more intensive support. Young people need to be empowered. That equips them with the skills they need to become young
5: adults. Teresa may only be 18, but when it comes to maturity and smarts, she's well on her way.
1: Norman Hermont. The nation's health ministers are meeting today, and one of the issues they'll talk about is the rapid popularity of vaping among young people. Australia's medicines regulator, the TGA, is working on how to crack down on a thriving black market of illegal nicotine vapes. Some claim that is the wrong approach, pointing to New Zealand's example of a more liberal policy. But many health experts say that will only lead to more people being addicted to nicotine.
0: Tom Lowry reports. At a Senate estimates hearing, the head of the TGA, Professor John Skerritt, sounded an alarm. While we're seeing smoking levels dropping in this country, the total nicotine use in this country is doing something it hasn't done for 50 years, and that's going up. That growth is being driven by vaping. It's on the mind of health policymakers nationwide, and health ministers are gathering today to discuss options for change. Professor Skerritt doesn't downplay the challenge. Probably emerging as one of Australia's most significant public health problems. Australia already has very tight rules around access to nicotine vapes. In theory, they are only available with a prescription for use in helping regular smokers quit but the reality is quite different. One in 10 people over 14 have tried vaping, and of those regularly vaping, a third are under 25 years old. Look, the prescription only model in Australia has failed. Theo Fakari represents Australian convenience stores and has previously worked in the tobacco industry. He argues Australians should be offered convenient, safe and legal nicotine vapes as an alternative to more harmful cigarettes.
2: The New Zealand government has taken a sensible common sense approach to providing a less harmful alternative to adults who are looking to quit and they have a licensed retail framework with really tight standards.
0: There are some in federal parliament, particularly within the coalition, making a similar case, but the New Zealand model has its critics. Janet Hoke is a professor of public health at the University of Otago and says the country has witnessed a boom in vaping among young teenagers.
4: Daily vaping prevalence among 14 to 15-year-olds is around 10%, but among some subgroups of the population, and here I'm thinking in particular about Uh, young Maori girls aged 14 to 15 daily vaping prevalence is over 25%.
0: Professor Hoke puts that down to New Zealand's relaxed approach to vaping.
4: I think um, the wide availability of vaping products is one of the reasons why we've seen rising levels of youth vaping.
0: Professor Emily Banks from ANU has led a review of the evidence around vaping. She says while vaping is a worthwhile alternative for smokers, the conversation should be centred on those turning to vaping without that
1: For them, the comparison with smoking is irrelevant. We need to compare how e-cigarettes compare to breathing.
0: The TGA is reviewing the rules around vaping with an eye to measures like plain packaging, banning flavours and tightening up imports. Independent MP Kate Cheney says the government needs to act fast.
6: We need to end the black market in vapes by banning um, all importation and supply of of e-cigarette products regardless of their labelled nicotine content unless they're actually going to a
1: pharmacy. Independent MP Kate Chaney ending that report from Tom Lowry. Seeing a doctor in regional Australia has never been harder and the problem's expected to become worse in the future. But a new study shows medical students who do some of their training in the regions are more likely to move and work there after they finish gaining their qualifications even if they grew up in the big smoke. Here's regional health reporter Stephen Schubert. Fourth-year medical
7: student Jessica Traves has spent most of her life in Brisbane, but during her medical degree at the University of Queensland, she went regional, studying for a year in Harvey Bay, another in Toowoomba, and for three months in the small town of Theodore, which has a population of 438 people.
2: I love Brisbane, but I also really love being outside of Brisbane and being out of visit. And I enjoy, you know, being in a smaller community, smaller hospital as well. Ms
7: Traves says she wasn't expecting to pursue rural medicine until she had a two-week placement in her first year of study.
2: And then I was sort of just hooked from that point in and didn't really look back or consider uh, solely metro career or training from that point really.
7: Attracting and retaining doctors has been a challenge for regional parts of Australia for decades. The number of GPs per person is falling in the most remote parts of the country and the problem is only getting worse. According to a survey by the Royal Australian College of GPs, rural and remote doctors are more likely to retire in the next 10 years compared to their city colleagues. But new research published today in the peer-reviewed British Medical Journal points to one possible solution.
6: This work actually tells us where there's bums on seats. This is doctors working
7: in rural areas. Bruce Chayda is the Professor of Rural and Remote Medicine at the University of Queensland and a doctor in Theodore. The university's training program requires students to spend six weeks in a rural town in their third year, but students can elect to double that.
6: What we found was that if we put them into a small rural town for 12 weeks, We doubled the number of future doctors in small rural towns.
7: And they're not just leaving after a year or two.
6: This is data on doctors who are now four to ten years post their medical school. Um, So they're actually out there and staying there.
7: Dr Dan Halliday is the president of the Australian College of Rural and Remote Medicine. He says the study's results are encouraging, but there's still more work to be done to promote rural medicine in other parts of the education system.
5: Well, I'd actually like to see a continuum,
1: um, you know, almost starting uh, at the uh, the end of high school, which actually facilitates not just rural you know, students, but actually creates a broader awareness um, of medicine in regional, rural and remote areas. The Australian College of Rural Medicine's Dr Dan Halliday ending Stephen Schubert's report. By 2030, Australia's red meat industry wants to be carbon neutral, meaning the race is on to find products that reduce methane emissions from sheep and cows. Some companies have found early success by feeding seaweed to livestock, while others are developing synthetic pellets and powders. Eliza Borello reports.
4: Delatite Station in northeast Victoria is a proud supplier of beef for Coles' new carbon neutral range. But farmer Mark Ritchie says at the moment the meat only really becomes carbon neutral when the supermarket giant buys carbon credits.
7: 75% of our emissions are from methane, so... Until we crack the nut of reducing emissions, it's going to be reasonably hard work.
4: Cracking the methane emissions nut, so to speak, is big business. Mark Van Euland is an executive with the Dutch company Royal DSM, which has developed a powder it says can reduce methane emissions by up to 92%.
0: It really depends on what's the the diet and the ration combination. So we've seen anywhere between 50 and 90%.
4: Here on Australian shores, the CSIRO found feeding red seaweed or asparagus to cattle can reduce methane emissions by up to 90%. Asparagopsis is now being commercialised by companies like CH4 Australia. Adam Main is its general manager.
5: All of our evidence, all of our trials have shown that cows uh, enjoy, eat, and benefit from eating the seaweed.
4: Hot on the heels of the seaweed companies is Perth businessman David Messina. After noticing the CSIRO's asparagopsis results, his company set out to stabilise its active ingredient and use it to make synthetic feed additives like pellets and powders. A good example is aspirin, which naturally occurs on the bark of willow trees. And we we obviously don't grow willow trees to supply our aspirin requirements. So now we do that in a pharmaceutical production environment that can be scaled, Um, it gets the cost down and gives you an exact amount uh, in every tablet that you have. And in exactly the same way uh, is what we're doing with the bioactive out of the seaweed. Laboratory tests suggest the company's product, Ruminate, reduces methane emissions by up to 95%. But it believes a good field result would be more than 85%. University of Melbourne Livestock Systems expert Richard Eckard says one of the biggest factors for farmers will be how much the products cost.
5: There are a few studies around at the moment that would say in the livestock industries, 20 cents per day per animal is about the limit of what farmers could pay and, and, and come out neutral.
4: Ruminate is aiming for a cost per day per animal of 27 cents and Royal DSM's product costs 50 cents a day for beef cattle. While CH4 Global couldn't give an exact price but agreed it was currently around $2 a day per cow.
1: Eliza Borello reporting and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.
4: Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. To some, Charlie Teo is a god of brain surgery, a doctor willing to push the boundaries to save lives. To others, he's a risk taker who goes too far. Today, we look at the Medical Disciplinary Commission, looking into the deaths of two of Dr Teo's patients. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC listener. app.